we, we are fascinated by this idea of heaven. We are fascinated by this idea of the afterlife. That's why movies a decade ago, like What Dreams May Come, uh, starring Robin Williams, and why the book Heaven is for Real. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have read Heaven is for Real? All right, a lot of you, I'm about to disappoint you, but that's okay. All right, um, the book Heaven is for Real, and, and the movie is coming out on DVD later, later, later this week. That's why these movies and these books are so popular. This is why uh, uh, post-death testimonials are so, are so popular because we're all just fascinated by this. And if you're anything like me, you find yourself, after you hear an after-death testimonial or you read the book Heaven is for Real or you watch a movie, don't you find yourself asking the question, is this true? Now, don't get me wrong. I have absolutely no doubts that these people had a post-death experience of some kind. My, my question is a little bit different than that because I believe that they had a, a post-death experience. My question is, is it true? Is it, is it from, from, from God? I have no doubt that uh, their, their brains had, had some sort of reaction, but, but is what they experienced true? Was it from God? And I want to show you a text uh, that comes at the, at the end of the book of Revelation. Here's what it says, 2218. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. Now, that's pretty heavy, and I'm not going to unpack all of that. Here's, here's what I know, and here's what this verse is teaching us. Did you know what you need to know about heaven fully is written in the scriptures? There's nothing you need to know about heaven that is not currently written in the scriptures. So when you hear a post-death experience, when you read a, a book a, about heaven, your number one question should be, does this back up what the scriptures say about heaven? If it backs up what the scriptures say about heaven, it is real, it is from God. If it does not, I would stay away from it. Now, now any of these people that have had these post, post-death experiences, they'll be accountable to God, as the scripture says, for adding to John's account. But we, need, as Christians, we just need to be careful what we listen to and what we believe. And I'll tell you what's behind a lot of this. What's behind a lot of this is uh, we want to know more. We understand what the scriptures say about the afterlife, and, and we understand what the scriptures say about heaven, but we feel like we want to know more. We want more detail, and I would caution you against that. I, w- I would caution you against that, and I want to encourage you to believe that the truth of this book is sufficient. Let me be just even a little more dramatic. You, you don't need a 10-year-old to tell you heaven is for real. You can know heaven is for real because God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired this book, and this book says it's for real. So, so you don't need a, a, a grandfather or a little boy or anybody for that matter. And I'm not, I'm not, don't mishear me. I've honestly not read the book. My wife read the book and found it very, very comforting. And uh, I plan to see the movie uh, later on in the next few weeks. So I'm not necessarily bashing the book, but I want you to hold tight onto these scriptures and understand you don't need somebody to go to the next life and come back to tell you this is for real. You don't need that as a Christian. Have full trust and faith in this book that what you need to know about the afterlife, what you need to know about heaven, this book is sufficient. This book is sufficient for for the hope that that you need to have and what you need to to walk in. So if somebody has an encounter that is backed up by this book, I'm inclined in that moment to believe that it's probably true. But if it goes beyond, if it adds to I'm suspicious. I'm not going to lie to you. If something goes beyond what the Bible says about heaven, I'm suspicious. 
Because John in Revelation 22 verse 18 says very, very clearly to us, don't add to this book. Don't add to it. So when someone comes back from the afterlife and says, I had this experience, and they go beyond what the scriptures say, I'm suspicious and I think you should be too. Be suspicious of that because we're told not to add to it. That the, the, the Bible and, and John, John's writings in the Bible and the rest of what the Bible has to say about heaven is holy and completely sufficient. And I hope to demonstrate that to you today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. You're not mad at me about the heaven is for real thing, right? We're just talking here, okay? Don't be getting all angry about this, all right? You know, so I, I, know, I know that book sold a lot of copies. I know a lot of people, I don't, even, I don't even know that much about it. But here's what I do know. I don't need a 10-year-old to tell me heaven is for real. I know heaven is for real because this book is wholly sufficient. It told me heaven is for real. Um, Throughout the, the book of Revelation, we have seen God initiate the end of all things. We, we've seen seven seals broken, seven trumpets sounded, seven bowls of God's wrath poured out. We have seen God utterly and completely destroy Satan, the beast of the land, the beast of the sea. We've seen him throw them into the lake of fire and sulfur. And, sulfur. and now we are at the point in the story where, where we are ready to see God usher his people into an eternity planned for his people. And I want to walk you through just some random verses in this text that we might see why God's been doing what he's been doing. Why the seven trumpets? Why the seven seals? Why the seven bowls? And we finally get to see what God's been working toward. That he had to destroy Satan because he didn't want evil to exist for all of eternity. He had to destroy death because he wanted his people to be able to live forever. He had to destroy disease because he wanted us free from that in the last days. And and all the stuff that God has done in the first 20 chapters of Revelation now we get to see what God was working toward, and it's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely beautiful. So uh, let's look at the first couple verses of chapter 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, I want to start here because I I always think this is very, very interesting. Right now, John is describing in this text two different places. Right now, there is heaven where God is right now, and where our loved ones that have preceded us in death, they're in a place called paradise, which is basically heaven. So there's heaven where God is right now, and there is earth where we are right now. I think that's probably an elementary statement, right? We're, we're on earth, right? If you don't think we're on earth, talk to me after. We'll get some prayer for you, all right? Um, Heaven where God is, earth where we are. Here's what the Bible teaches. Someday, heaven where God is right now is going to pass away. And someday, earth where we are right now is going to pass away. And what we traditionally refer to as heaven, the Bible actually refers to as the new heaven and the new earth. That Jesus Christ is preparing this place for us right now. That is some combination of heaven where God is right now and earth where we are right now. And it's often in the scriptures called a holy city, a new Jerusalem. So, so this place is being prepared for us right now. So heaven where God is, that's going to pass away. Earth where we are, that's going to pass away. And God is preparing for us a new city, a combination of heaven and earth where we will live. And those that have preceded us in death, they will live with Jesus forever. 
Now, the other thing I love about this text is that it does refer to heaven, the new heaven that that we're going to go to upon Jesus' return. It refers to it as a city. And one of the things that I love about this is that there is this idea of heaven in our culture that we're all going to be like hanging out on clouds playing harps. Right or uh, another another one of the images that I remember as a kid was that uh, heaven is just going to be one long worship service. And as a kid that had trouble sitting still in church, that didn't sound like heaven to me. Right? It didn't sound like heaven to me. So we we have we have these images, uh, and, and the reality is that heaven is going to be a city. Now, don't misunderstand me. Heaven is going to be one long time of worship, but. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We, we typically think about that being singing. Uh, <clears throat> my voice is cracking there. We typically think about it being singing because we tend to be kind of small-minded about worship. When, whenever we hear the word worship, we think, oh, singing. When the Bible talks about worship, it talks about it in a much broader sense. So when the Bible talks about worship, it talks about, yeah, singing is worship. But when I love you, Uh, the way I'm called to love you, that is an act of worship. Worship is anything that gives glory to God. So when I put in an honest day's hard work, that that is worship, me giving glory to God. Kids, when you obey your parents, that is you giving glory. That that is an act of worship. Worship is anything that gives glory to God. So when we say heaven is going to be one long time of worship, we don't mean heaven is going to be one long worship service where all we're doing is singing for all of eternity. We are going to sing in heaven, but we're also going to love each other We're also going to serve. We're going to do any number of things that gives glory to God. We're not just going to be singing the whole time. We're going to be in relationship. We're going to be serving. We're going to be eating together. Amen. We're going to be praising God. We're going to live in a city. You're not in some cloud playing a harp. You're not in some just church service for all of eternity. You're in a city. It's dynamic. It's active. There's relationships. But all of it's going to be for the glory of God. Revelation 21 verses 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, uh, with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This has always been the desire of your heavenly Father from the very beginning, is that the dwelling of God would be with man. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, it was a garden. At the end of all things, when we go on to our eternity, it's going to be a city. But God's goal has always been that his dwelling would be with us. And he would be our God and we would be his people. And if you know the the Bible, you know that the book of Genesis teaches that that was the original intent of this garden of Eden. Eventually, man and the woman sin. Their sin separates them from God. There's this tree of life that if they eat from it, they'll live forever. And God has to kind of banish them from the garden so that as sinners, they won't eat and live forever. God doesn't want us to live forever as sinners. And so there's this separation that the dwelling of God could no longer be with man because of our sin. A holy God cannot be around sin. It has to be dealt with. So here's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible, this is amazing. The story of the Bible is the story of how your creator God deals with your sin. He doesn't ask you to deal with it. He doesn't ask you to solve it in terms of eternal significance. He doesn't ask you to take care of your own problem. The story of the Bible is the story of how God deals with our sin. And the story of the Bible is that one day God gave us his son, his one and only son, who lived a perfect life and went to a cross, and he paid for our sin. 
The wages of sin is death, and he paid the price for it on the cross. He, he died. So that anyone who trusts in him could have the relationship with God they were created to have in this life and in the next. And this is when... Um, this is when sin and Satan and death were defeated. The story of Revelation is how they, come to be de- how they came to be destroyed. And so after they're destroyed, look at the text again, and, and here's what it says, this kind of wonderful, beautiful language. Here's what it says. Now, now that sin has been defeated, now that sin has been destroyed, now that Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God, this is what God wants. This is God's desire. If you want to know what God wants, this is what God wants. He wants his dwelling to be with his creation. And so sin and all of that had to be dealt with. And he's a good God. Look at the tender language in verse four. I love this. If you're a parent, you understand the desire to do this. As we enter into God's presence, verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. This is what God accomplished for you in chapter 20, verse 14, when he threw death into the lake of fire, is that he greets us in heaven, the new heaven, and the tears that have flowed so readily on this earth, he he wipes them away, and he ushers us into an eternity, listen, an eternity with no cancer, an eternity with no funerals, an eternity with no disease, an eternity with, with no problems of any kind. We come in with this, with, with tears flowing because of how things have, have gone on earth. And, and I'll tell you what, I, it has been a long time since I've cried as much as I have the last month. Right? Tears just flow on this earth because it is a broken and fallen world. And someday we'll present ourselves to Jesus and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will usher us in eternity where, listen, the old order of things has passed away. Funerals are the old order. Cancer is the old order. Heart disease is the old order. Alzheimer's is the old order. Old order. The old order of things has passed away and new things are to come. We will live in a city where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain. I know this is going to kind of shock some of you. I don't like to wear suits. All right? um, but, I, but I have two suits. I have a, a navy blue suit and I have a gray suit. All right? Sometimes I refer to this as marrying them suits and burying them suits, right? Because, because there are just some, some times in life where, where, you have to, where you have to have a suit. So here's what the Bible teaches, that there will not be any need for marriage in heaven. We can talk about, if you have a question about that, we can talk about that more next week. But there will be no need for marriage in heaven, and there will be no funerals in heaven. So praise be to God for his indescribable gift. We will not need suits in heaven. I think you could actually take this one step further and say suits are from the evil one. Um, but maybe that's, just, maybe that's going one, one step a little too far. I don't know. But, all right, um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I'm kidding, but verse 4, it is such an incredible promise to, to Christians. I really want you to wear that truth on that, that in this eternal city, there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And beginning in verse 4, I want to show you 
Um, a lot of people sometimes wonder, what does heaven look like? What is the new city going to look like? And the Bible actually tells us, verse 11 begins a physical description of the city. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting. In verse 9, we're told that the angel that comes to John and shows John what the city's going to look like is the same angel that had poured out the bowls of God's wrath a, a couple chapters earlier. So it is as if the same angel is coming to John and says, I know you were confused when God was pulling, pouring out his wrath on the earth, but now let, let me show you what that was all about. Let me show you what the new Jerusalem looks like. Let me show you what we were working toward and why we did what we did previously. And then he shows them this city. And the best way I can describe it is it's free of all those things I talked about, free of death and disease and hardship, but it is a city filled with the glory of God. Verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that it has, the wall of the city is high, it has 12 gates, and, and 12 angels are on the gates, and on the gates are written uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. The wall of the city surrounding uh, the wall of the city surrounding everything has twelve foundations, and written on these foundations are the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Verse sixteen tells us that the city. If you ever wonder what it looks like, it's going to be laid out like a square. The walls are made of jasper, which is an opaque reddish kind of brown stone, and the uh, the the, uh, the city has pure gold, which is as pure as glass. The foundations of the city are decorated with every kind of precious stone you can imagine. The gates of the city, if you can imagine this, the gates of the city are pearls, giant pearls, and the streets are made of pure gold. We're told in verse 23 that the city does not need uh, any sun or moon to shine in it because God's glory uh, gives the light the city that it needs, and Jesus provides all the light that the city needs. So you see this image of of light when it comes to God's glory all the time, to, to step away from the text just for a moment. When Moses is in the presence of God, his face shines to the point where it actually scares people. Uh, when Jesus is baptized, uh, God's glory uh, comes down on him and actually lights on him. Um, when uh, Jesus is transfigured, he shows the disciples his glory. His face begins to, to shine very, very brightly, and we're told that heaven is filled with the glory of God. And so the glory of God is going to shine brightly. So in heaven, you won't need a sun. In heaven, you won't need a moon. It's just going to shine bright with the glory of God. And it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine because we've never fully seen God's glory. We've just caught these glimpses of like, you know, a, a beautiful rainbow or an amazing sunrise or sunset and, uh, and an amazingly bright star. We, we've had these moments where we can see how bright and, and wonderful and amazing God is. And, and just think about that for all of eternity where you never need a sun again. Uh, you, you never need a moon again. You never need a light on to, to, to light your path. Now, let me just kind of pause here for a moment because this is one of my problems with a lot of post-death accounts of heaven. Uh, one of my problems with a lot of the theories that float around with, with heaven in general is that they tend to be very humanistic. Right? And here's what I mean by that. When I say that a lot of theories about heaven tend to be humanistic, I, I mean that they tend to be about us. They, they tend to glorify us. So a theologian says that in heaven, each of us are going to have a room and it's going to be filled with the things we love the most. Or, or another person says that heaven is going to be whatever you want it to be because heaven is for you. Now, now don't misunderstand me at all. I think there are going to be things in, in heaven that you love. 
Uh, the Bible says that God gives good gifts to his children. The Bible says that God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Our joy is important to God. But let's not cross a line here and say that all of a sudden heaven is all about us. Um, the Bible is very, very clear that heaven is filled with the glory of God. Heaven is all about God. Heaven is all about Jesus. And when we step into our eternity, right, we're going to see the glory of God. We're going to see the glory of the Son. And things that we thought were once about us are, are not going to be about us at all because heaven's not about us. Heaven is about Jesus. And the whole place is going to be filled with his glory. And in that moment, when, when you see his glory, you're going to respond uh, the, the way the disciples did when they saw Jesus' glory. They fell down and they worshiped. They fell down and they worshiped because when you see his glory, your life is never going to be the same. And things that you thought were about you are not going to be about you. And all of a sudden, it's all going to become about God. Now, that's not to say, again, there are not going to be things we enjoy in heaven. Of course, there's going to be things we enjoy in heaven. God loves his children. He provides good things for them. But heaven is all about Jesus. Let me show you verse 22. Right? We've talked a lot about what is in heaven. Let me show you what, what is not in heaven. Uh, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So no temple in heaven. In, in the early century, Jewish folks especially would, would uh, think about the temple as being the place that you went to to encounter God, a place that you went to encounter God. There is no need for a temple in heaven because you are in the presence of God all the time. Heaven is filled with the glory of the Father and of the Son. So no need for a temple in heaven. Verse 25. I love this. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Cheryl and I have an ongoing ritual uh, before we go to bed. Um, and uh, I, I take Daisy out for her, her last business so that we don't have to get up at three and do it then. Um, that's kind of my job. Cheryl does some last kind of minute stuff around the house. I come back in with Daisy. We all get ready to walk upstairs and about two or maybe three steps in, we'll be walking up and Cheryl will turn to me and say, did you lock the back door? And most of the time I'm like, yeah, it's locked. Most of the time I'm like, I think it's locked. Um, let, me, let, me go, let me go check and see if it's locked. And I'll have to go back to the back of the house and, and make sure the door is locked. And my wife feels very strongly about this because she doesn't want someone coming into our house in the middle of the night. As a guy, I'm like, hey, you want to come into our house in the middle of the night? It's go time. Let's go. All right. Um, but um, she feels differently. So I checked the door for her. All right. Um, and isn't it true that some of our worst anxieties come out at night? So I love, I love what this passage says. The gates of heaven are never shut. In other words, God never feels the need to lock the doors of heaven. He, he never feels the need to lock the door. And there is never any nighttime in heaven. There, he, here's what the passage is teaching. There's nothing to be afraid of in heaven. If you are someone that struggles with anxiety... If you are someone that struggles uh, with fears and you're just afraid all the time of, of this or that or the other thing, there will be nothing to be afraid of in heaven. God feels so strongly about this that he doesn't even lock the door. He doesn't even lock the door because there, there's no one, no one's going to be able to come in and, and, and do any harm to the people of God in that moment. So, so if you struggle with anxiety and you struggle with fear and you struggle with that, this is a word for you. 
that, that someday your anxiety and fear will be over. There will be nothing for you to be afraid of. Verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, all right, meaning the city. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those, who, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we have to think about this verse just for a moment because it would be easy uh, to walk away and feel like, well, are you saying that only people who are perfect are going to be in heaven? And here's what I would say to you, and then I want to unpack this a little bit more. It's not that those who are in heaven are going to be perfect. It is that those who are forgiven are going to be in heaven. Now, because the reason I say this is you may read this text and you may think that it's teaching that you know, nobody who's done anything shameful or deceitful or impure are going to enter into the city. And you may find yourself thinking, wait a second. If you're honest, like I am, I've done some impure things. I've done some shameful things. I've done some deceitful things. Is this passage teaching that I'm going to hell and I'm not going to be welcomed into the city? Here's what I need you to understand. If your faith is in Jesus and you are following after him from the cross, he forgave your sins. So listen to this. This is part of the good news. In God's eyes, if you are forgiven through the son, in God's eyes, you are not impure anymore. You are pure. In God's eyes, you are not shameful. You are forgiven. In God's eyes, you are not deceitful, you are holy, not because of how great you are, but because of how good Jesus was, and he pays for your sin on the cross. We have a temptation to define ourselves by our sin. Well, I did an impure thing, so now I'm impure. I didn't unholy, now I'm unholy. And we define ourselves by some of our worst mistakes and our worst regrets. In Jesus Christ, that door is shut. In Jesus Christ, you are no longer impure, you are pure. In Jesus Christ, you are no longer unholy, you are holy. In Jesus Christ, you, you are no longer a sinner, you are forgiven. It, it is in Jesus Christ that our, our debts and our shame and our regret are forgiven and set free, and that's good news. Because some of you are Christians, and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are still walking around defining yourself by the worst sins you've committed in your past. And I have a word for you today. Jesus does not see you that way. Jesus does not see you as the impure person that, that uh, when, you, when you did the act you're mo- you most regret. He does not see you as that unholy person. He, he sees you by his grace and through the cross as holy, pure, and righteous. Say, I don't feel holy, pure, and righteous. The reason you don't feel holy, pure, and righteous is because you are still refusing to see yourself the way that Jesus Christ sees you. This Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you, this Jesus Christ who died for you, this Jesus Christ who paved the way for you so that you could have eternal life despite your sin. I implore you, Christian, I implore you to begin to see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. Say, I don't feel pure. Trust what Jesus says about you. I don't feel holy. Trust what Jesus says about you. I don't feel righteous. Trust what Jesus says about you. Begin to see yourself the way the Son sees you. And stop defining yourself by the, by the worst mistakes that you've made in your life. And start defining yourself the way that Jesus Christ defines you. And by his grace and through the cross, he says something very different about you than you say about you. He says about you that you are pure. He says about you that you are holy. 
He says about you that you are righteous, not, be, not because every decision that you've made is pure and holy and righteous, but because Jesus forgave those sins. And now God, the, the Bible word for this is justification. It's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Justification, that now God, because of Jesus, God sees you just as if you'd never sinned. That's good. That, that, that's good. I'm preaching better than you're reacting. But that, that is, it, it is, it is good news. It is good news that in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are set free and you are made right. So that when you stand before your heavenly father, he is going to see you just as if he'd never sinned. And this passage can now be true about you, that nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. This is how all of us who have sinned and all of us who have made mistakes can stand, stand before our heavenly father and, and walk in and this verse can be true about us. This verse can be true. And I, I wonder if maybe on that day, I'm walking in and somebody's gonna say, no, you're, you're, letting, you're, you're letting Higgs in? I know he's impure. I know he's, un, I know he's unrighteous. You're, you're letting Higgs in? And Jesus Christ is gonna stand there and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Th- those sins have been forgiven and so he's able to enter in, in uh, pure, holy, and righteous He's able to enter in by that. And I want to close uh, by showing you Revelation 22, 1 through 4. Uh, and, and when I say close, I mean we have more time to go, about 10 minutes. So it's a preacher's close. Um, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, uh, and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. You ever wondered how, like, all of these different nations that maybe don't get along that well on earth, how are they going to get along in heaven? This verse tells us, I'm not going to belabor this point, it's not even in my notes right now, but it just struck me as I was reading it, that uh, part of the tree of life is going to bring healing to the nations. So that's that's how that's going to happen. But one of my favorite parts of the book of Revelation is this passage that we, we, we just read. Because you remember what I said earlier, it's very important that we understand this, that God's plan was that he was going to share in a garden with his people. And in order for there to be true love in this garden, there had to be free will. There had to be the ability to make choice. And so God uh, gave the man and the woman that he created a choice. He said, you can eat from the tree of life and live forever in the garden, or you can eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes will be opened, um, and uh, it's ultimately going to result in death. And now you have a choice. You can make, you can make the choice. And the man and the woman, through the, the temptation of, of Satan, chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, if you want to know how, why the world is the way the world is, in that moment, Adam and his wife Eve, by sinning, brought death, hardship, and disease into this world. This is part of what the Bible calls the curse. In, in that moment, when sin entered the world, the earth was cursed, and things have never 
been the same. So they had to leave the garden. And one of the saddest scenes in the book of Revelation is that God banishes the man and the woman from the garden, and then he puts an angel, and remember, a flaming sword going back and forth at the entrance of the garden because he didn't want the man and the woman sneaking back into the garden as sinners and eating from the tree of life and living forever in their sinful state. God just didn't want that. And so as I said earlier, the story of the rest of the Bible is the story of how God chooses to deal with our sin. And ultimately, he defeats it at the cross. The story of Revelation is how he destroys it once and for all. And now we are free to enter into eternity uh, absolutely free. And I love how Revelation 22 describes it. Look at this. That for the first time now, for the first time in Scripture, the tree of life is available to you. Your sin has been defeated at the cross and the resurrection It has been destroyed in the book of Revelation. Once it has been thrown into the lake of fire, now sin has been dealt with. It has been destroyed. Satan has been cast out. The beasts of the uh, earth and the beasts of the sea have been cast out. And now, for the very first time, God allows the tree of life to be available to us again. And we are free to enter into this city and, and, and pull the fruit from that tree and live forever. Free of death, free of disease free of hardship. Look at what verse three says, free from the curse, free from the curse, that no longer are we separated from God because of our sin. That's part of the curse. No longer are we separated from each other because of the curse. That's part, that, that's part of the curse. No more death. That's part of the curse. No more hardship. That is part of the curse. The curse is over. And I think this is where the the blessing of revelation comes from. I want to remind you of something I said uh, 12, well, uh, 14, 15 weeks ago when we started the series. I said that if you will commit to reading the book of Revelation, remember it said at the very uh, beginning of the book that you will be blessed by reading this book. Even though we don't fully understand it, even though we don't fully get it, said this is the only book of the Bible that I'm aware of that promises you and me a blessing just for reading it. Right, so you look at this book, you hear this book, you will be blessed. And at the end of the book of Revelation, it tells me where the blessing comes from in verse 14. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. This is the blessing of Revelation, that you would see how things are going to end And it would motivate you to get things right with God. It would motivate you to get things right with God. You would place your faith in Jesus. And because you have placed your faith in Jesus, you, at the end of the day, would now have access to the tree of life and enter into the gates on that last day. That is the blessing of Revelation is that despite how scary it can be at times, despite how uncertain it can be at times, despite all of those kind of scary aspects of Revelation, that the book of Revelation would motivate you, motivate you to get things right with your Heavenly Father, and that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ. And on this last day, when we're ready to enter into our eternity for all forever, because, for, forever, because you have placed your faith in Jesus, you would now have access to the tree of life and you would enter into the gates unfettered because your sins are forgiven. That's a blessing. And that is the blessing of Revelation because it is an eternal blessing. It's the best kind of blessing. It is a blessing that lasts forever. Will you stand with me?